is an 18-year-old man who's studying to be a commercial airline pilot. He has an unquenchable thirst for knowledge. And that's where this show comes in. This is Wanna Coffee Talk? Aris Martinez is focused on understanding the world around him. So he's grabbing a cup of coffee and sitting down to talk to the experts and professionals about what makes them tick. Everybody sits back, has some coffee, and the conversation gets real. It's real. This is Wanna Coffee Talk, and this is your host, Aris Martinez. So, what's up, Rebecca? Welcome to Wanna Coffee Chat. How's your life going? Thanks. Uh, my life is good. Um, summer's ending here, but feeling feeling excited about what's ahead. Same here. About to start school. And actually, I just passed my driving test today. So, that was a huge success for me. So, yeah, that was pretty, pretty um, interesting and fun. Yeah, thank you. So, um, Professor, um, you've graduated from the Purdue University Neuroscience Program back in 2002. And your career has evolved up to the moment we are right now, in which you're a national, national leading uh, researcher when it comes to sleep science and learning cognitive uh, processes and stuff. And so, basically, instead of introducing yourself as, as and me talking too much, I would like to go straight into some questions that will let your knowledge shine through. So, first of all, how does the brain process learning? Like, what goes inside your head when you learn something new, especially motor activities? Yeah, this is what I think is really cool and fascinating. And that is like when we are learning something during the day, you can think of it as your brain making a little video of what you're learning. And what happens is when you sleep, it takes that video and it replays it over and over again. Um, so it's like if you wanted to learn all of the words to your favorite scene in a movie, you might go back and rewatch that scene over and over again in order to learn the words of the movie. And your brain actually takes the same exact strategy to learning the information from our day. Now, of course, you're not seeing an actual movie while you're sleeping. That's not what it is in the brain. Instead, in the brain, it's happening at the level of cells firing. So if I were able to record individual cells in your brain, I would see it playing a really a neural song. And that neural song that I see while you're learning something is the exact same neural song that I can see while you're sleeping. So it takes that little song and it replays it and you can see evidence of it. And what's also cool that makes sleep really efficient is it can replay that song without the interference of other things, right? So we could replay that song while we're still awake, but the advantage of sleep is it can be played in isolation without other interference. And the other thing that happens during sleep is that song is played and fast forward. So whatever speed I see that neural song speed um, when you're actually learning it, you can speed it up during the night. So again, that makes sleep really efficient because you're able to do it without interference and you're able to do it at high speed, which gives you the capacity to basically replay your day, which might be, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours in a much shorter amount of time than it took place by playing it and fast forward. And we probably replay these memories over and over again. We also think we filter memories so that we can prioritize some. 
So emotional memories, for instance, might get more playtime during sleep than just kind of some, some passing incident. Um, so I think sleep is like a really smart memory maker because it can filter our memories, it can prioritize memories, and it can really help us solidify those memories in the brain for the long term. All right, that's pretty interesting because sometimes, well, not sometimes, most of the times we just kind of separate memory and sleep into different phenomenons and you're just tying them together from the first moment. So it sounds like if sleep wasn't a thing, then memory couldn't exist. Is that correct? Yeah, that might be an extreme. I think memories wouldn't be as good. Memories would decay um, and they would lose their quality. Um, so you'd have much weaker memories. I think you'd also do less prioritization. So you might not do you know, as good of a job of saying, hey, that scary event, you had to learn from those scary events. So all the negative, a lot of the negative things that happened to us, happened to us, particularly when you're a kid and you're learning, they happen so that you can learn from them. You know, like if you just learn to drive the first time that you, you know, maybe hit the brakes too hard right behind a car, that should be startling and it should be emotional and it should scare you. And sleep helps prioritize that. So to your point of what if we didn't have sleep, you might not get that information kind of rising to the top and it might be more similar to just the rest of your drive. And so sleep kind of helps prioritize that. And without sleep, we might have some memories, but they would be weaker and we wouldn't have maybe that salience and the important memories not rising to the top like we really need. Got it. So one of my questions was also if we can actually control memory, but it seems like sleep controls memory for us, right? When it comes to the prioritization, sometimes I just feel like, well, I might want to remember this important fact from my test, but then it suddenly just goes out of my memory. And then maybe I just run into someone at the street and I suddenly remember his name or something, which is like, why the heck do I remember this? But I don't recall that important fact in the test. And I just feel like, could we actually control memory? Is that, a, is that a thing? Yeah, and so there's really cool stuff in our field of people trying to choose what's prioritized more. So one way we can do that is if you're studying for an exam, and you study with a unique odor, um, you know, like the smell of um, popcorn, because they have a bowl of popcorn next to you. And then while you're sleeping, if you're able to, you know, have somebody come in and put a bowl of popcorn next to you in the middle of the night, what that will do is you can passively smell things while you're sleeping. And so then your brain's going to say, what else did I, what else do I know about popcorn? It's, it's, smelling while you're sleeping. And it can say, what do I associate with popcorn? Well, I associate that physics that you were studying for. And so now that's a way to trigger your brain to not just process anything from your day, but to specifically focus in on those memories that were associated with popcorn, like let's say physics. So that's a way that people are trying to manipulate specifically what is it that your brain works on? Not just any of the memories, but let's focus in on these memories, these memories that were associated with maybe a smell. People have also tried to use tones. So there are different ways that we can kind of trigger the, the brain to do this process, but do it with a specific memory in mind. Um, so it's a really interesting way to get at your point of, you know, like there's a lot of things going on in my day, but I want to choose what's salient rather than just leaving that to the brain. And those are ways that you can do it. I mean, the other way is people have played with adding a little bit of emotion to it. So if you, if you stick your hand in an ice bath, I can tell you that whatever you're studying for is going to be slightly more memorable than it was otherwise. Um, so there are various ways you can kind of 
trick your brain a little bit. Um, and we're still learning about that, but it seems promising. Definitely. And what about the future? Because just uh, when it comes to the, this memory prioritization and stuff, it just suddenly comes up uh, Elon Musk and Neuralink and how this chip that supposedly in the future we'll be able, we will be able to kind of record or and say, well, this memory is kind of cool. I might want to replay it in, in real time. And maybe just, you know, playing with memory, but with an external tip, which is what Elon Musk wanna, wants to do. So I just want to know your thoughts about Elon Musk and Neuralink and maybe what about the future? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some really cool ideas there as to what we could potentially do. And we're really focused on how can we, you know, selectively enhance memories in ways that I was just talking about. I think there's some other ways that we could go in and perhaps trigger individual memories as well. You know, what we haven't talked about, though, is there's also this really important um, kind of side effect, but maybe the priority for other people is is selectively forgetting things. And what that could be is like, if you take somebody who's experienced something traumatic, now that's where I think you've got something important to really focus on too, is not just how can we make the smart person smarter, but can we instead be thinking about too, how can we help those people who have really been struggling or traumatized by some, you know, something they witnessed or experienced, and now can we selectively go in and make that memory go away? And there's some people in our field who've wow. thought about how that might be possible. So now in that case, I could reactivate the memory, but rather than reactivate that memory during sleep to solidify it, I'm now going to go in specifically interfere with it to try to get rid of that scarring memory. So there's other ways to kind of take, take what you and Elon Musk think about and like flip it on its head for equal benefit, right? So sometimes we really want to target forgetting, not just remembering. That's such a point. And again, it's just like suddenly just things popping up in my head when you talk. And these this um, forgetting memories you may have seen blacklist the tv show um there's like an episode or or a man that just um has some kind of medicines that can make someone forget past um experiences is that or how how mount like how real can that be can we actually do that yeah, that's a great uh, question. I haven't seen it myself, but I had a student ask sim a similar question having seen it. So um, I, I think that this idea is possible. Um, I think we could selectively eventually, not, not where we're at now. I think, you know, pinning down memories and not hurting other memories is going to be a tricky science, right? Because almost as soon as we acquire something it's related to other things. It's, it's kind of quickly, you know, that seed suddenly spreads, meaning you have that idea or whatever that memory is that's dropped into your brain. And it's quickly making connections with things that are already known. And sometimes that's good because again, we've got to dissociate. We've got to learn from negative things. We've got to learn from positive things. We've got to file things away together. So I am, I am afraid that as we try to find ways to selectively, you know, get one memory, I don't know what that would look like to the other things that it's related to. Can we do that one memory without doing harm is the question. I also think you have the question of, can we do that one memory without, you know, preventing a learning experience? So there are seriously traumas you know, if somebody maybe that was attacked, that there's no nothing that they needed to learn from it. But there there are other negative things like severe car accidents, maybe, or, you know, maybe weather events that we could think of. That maybe there's some pieces that we need to learn from. And so I think there's 
not just those scientific questions that are ahead, but some ethical questions ahead of where's going to be the line of this is a good memory that if we take it out, that's really, you know, the best thing versus were there things to be learned from it, you know, um, and, you know, just even building social networks. So after something terrible happens to you from a, an individual, you build your social networks, having learned from a person who to trust, who not to trust. And so those are the kind of ethical questions that I think you start touching on as you hit memory science and you take it into that future thinking. Um, are they solvable? Absolutely. Um, but is there going to be kind of some tough questions ahead as you go there. Yeah, I think so. And, but that's, but that's a lot of really cool science to be done before we get to that point. It sounds so paradoxical in a way, because we're trying to learn about what makes us learn. Like we're trying, like we're learning about brain, but the brain learns in itself. It's like, it's as if we were taking control of, of a part of our body and then trying to learn more about it. It's not learning about how a, a, a mouse exactly works or like our own body and our own brain just mind-blowing yeah for me. exactly and the way with your mouse uh example the best thing you can do is just turn your mouse upside down and now try to learn a brand new mapping between that computer mouse and your computer screen and you get a sense for like oh that is this complex mapping that you've learned and probably the first time you did it particularly with the mapping we're used to it seems kind of straightforward and we don't really think much of that as a, as a learning process but now go try to tell somebody the steps it takes to ride a bike or to tie your shoes and as soon as you try to put steps on that or break it down into rules and steps. And then you watch maybe a small child try to interpret what you're saying. You're like, oh, that, that you know, you, it, it blows your mind because mm -hmm. you, here's something that you do every day. You tie your shoes, you use a computer mouse, you ride a bike. And those things, as soon as we think of them in steps that we're trying to get somebody else to acquire, suddenly they're not so simple. And in fact, the more you think about it yourself, the more likely you're even going to make a mistake of something that you do all the time. True. Because you're doing it at such a low level that as soon as cognitive control takes over, it's going to get in the way of what's really this automatic process. So that's a really cool thing about learning. And it's partly because in the brain, that memory is no longer kind of using these kind of basic memory areas, like when you first learn to tie your shoes and you're maybe saying rules or steps aloud, you're now using lower level brain areas that doesn't like the that kind of high level control. And in fact, that high level control can get in the way. So when these things happen, it's, it's like this real world evidence of, oh, different parts of my brain are, have now taken over shoe tying or bike riding. And it's no longer in those kind of high level explicit areas. It's in these really kind of low level motor areas. And I think that's really cool because like that means that just your average Joe can actually tap into what part of my brain is at work now. And you can tell by how hard it is to kind of make rules and statements and you know can you can declarative thoughts get in the way of it that would be a way to say it's moved to a different part of the brain um so that's and that's an experience that everybody has that can kind of tap into how how the brain is controlling your memory and your learning definitely because just with the riding the bike and stuff just reminds me of my previous class driving class like two days ago it's like I'm just driving. Please don't talk to me. I, I can't answer anything. Just I'm just focused on driving. But then you see an experienced driver and he just like can do multiple things at once. And then when it comes to my mind is what about muscular memory? Is does does that exist? Because at the end of the day, is 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 our muscles or do our muscles have memory? Or is our brain just 
you know, making things really, really automatic? Yeah, that's a great question. People do throw around this term muscle memory. I think as a neuroscientist, that like that term means nothing to me because our muscles don't have memory. There's nothing held yeah. kind of in the cell per se that we think, at least that we know of so far that can hold any memory. Um, so instead, I think it's when something's under that implicit control, that is what we call muscle memory. So it's in this implicit lower brain level control. And those areas of the brain have now taken over to make it more automatic. But the, the memory itself is still stored up here. It's just where it's stored up here and how can it be interfered with. And so that's what I think of when people use that term muscle memory. Um, it's not a memory in the muscle per se. It's just more that kind of those muscle activation patterns can be held at a lower level. All right. And does that tie in with um, the subconscious mind maybe? Because, oops, someone's calling me, sorry. Um, does that tie in with the subconscious mind? Because um, I've read a book about the subconscious mind and how um, vital and, you know, kind of important can it be to your daily life and just go somewhere with sleep again. So how, or are we overlooking the potential that the subconscious mind has? Oh, this is a great question because there's so much to it. So, you know, even that term subconscious is used a little lightly and I think can take on a few different meanings. So in the, in the case of like riding a bike, you're basically like doing this high level motor control, the balance on a bike. And you're like, you know, I can ride a bike at 20 miles per hour down a hill. And, you know, that's kind of scary to think of. And I'm in traffic and I can go between cars and Basically, the more I think about it, the more dangerous that becomes. So that's kind of scary, right? But mm -hmm. we do. So we do have this um, level of consciousness that's controlling it, but it's just at a totally you know, subconscious level that works in a completely different area of the brain and doesn't like to be interfered with. Right. Um, and so sometimes we can use that word some subconscious there, because if it was at my conscious level, that's where I get kind of distracted and, and don't do as well. The same time, you know, um, sleep can be referred to as this either subconscious or unconscious process. And, and think of how much the brain is doing. We used to think of sleep as just being this time of complete inactivity. I laid down, no muscles are moving and just zero. We kind of think of it as nothing is happening. But if I instead put you in a brain scanner, and so I could call you completely unconscious, right? But I could put you in a brain scanner and see like, not just, you know, like there's activity in the brain and the activity in the brain is in like really interesting areas. It's not just controlling your breathing and, you know, it's not just the respiratory areas. It's in areas that control memory. It's in areas that control emotions. You can see activity in a lot of really interesting high level brain areas, even though most people would say you're unconscious when you're sleeping. So there's something, you know, that, and so I would call that all of this subconscious processing is all of this processing that can go on in your brain when you're not conscious. Um, and so that's just, you know, a little bit in terms of the, the, the terms we use for it are a little bit mixed, but there's, it's certainly a different state of consciousness that you're in when you're sleeping than when you're awake. And then the other thing that's really cool is that, we like to think of all of wake as a singular thing and all of sleep as a singular thing. You're either in that state or you're that state. Well, let's blow that out of the water and say, we now know that within sleep, there's multiple states of consciousness. There's non-REM sleep where I've got these really high level areas 
going. There's REM sleep where I might see some emotional areas going. And so you've got multiple states of consciousness there within sleep. And then within wake, you can have different states. So we know that kind of these periods of an inattentiveness or mind wandering can have areas of the brain that are really in kind of low level alpha. You can even see a little spot in my brain that looks like it's asleep while I'm awake. So that I could, now we can think of the brain as not a one thing or the other, but it can be in multiple states at once. So the original way we looked at this was like in dolphins that we knew that a dolphin could have a whole hemisphere of its brain asleep. Well, the other whole hemisphere of the brain is awake. That's like complicated that, wait, this dolphin is both awake and asleep at the same time. We now know that like a version of that happens in humans. So a, a human's whole brain could look like it's awake, but if I had enough electrodes on you and you're kind of in that state of mind wandering or you know zoning out, we sometimes use that term, that might be the conscious state you're in, but there's like a local patch of sleep in your brain. So that means there's these multiple states of consciousness and it really gets at how we're defining that gets blown out of the water because like, I like to use electrodes and measure the brain to be able to say it's an either or, but now we know that it can be multiple kind of states at once. And so then we might just define it by your behavioral state being conscious or unconscious. So that really just kind of throws all of these semantics into it, right? Of how we define things. We might, we might be at a place where we need to redefine things in order to even answer these questions. God, yeah, I was also, um, I guess you're talking about the different brain waves and the alpha, theta, et cetera. And just the fun fact, I was about to, to buy like some sort of commercial brain wave reader because that sounded like so interesting you know being able to see or to do different activities and see oh this 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 type of waves are the ones that are predominating my my brain right now and that just sounded like so cool but it was a bit expensive and you know <laughs> my mother was like no son like, you're not gonna buy this <laughs> just like why mom this sounds really cool but no i'm with you that it sounds really cool i mean the uh, to defend your mother, um, you could, you know, like if, if you, even if you had access to all of these EEG things, you might learn a little bit about your brainwaves, but it might not necessarily mean you're able to control it. And, you know, in some ways I would say you're probably going to be able to over the counter, you can buy a device that might have a couple spots of electrodes, but I'm now telling you those spots might be one thing, but what about the whole rest of the brain? Right. And these now, now we can think of it as like, Oh, you're only going to have two spots of information that might not be nearly what it takes to truly understand these various kind of states of consciousness that we go through that you're interested in. Right. Yeah. Cause I see, I, I saw like different versions of this, of this brain reader and there were like different, like the amount of spots of that covered your brain was what made the price go lower or higher. And it was like, yeah, this sounds fair enough. So yeah. Just I might try um, buying one again, but <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna be that lucky. So, um, Rebecca, I just wanted to move um on with the naps and how important are naps for our daily life? Because here in Spain, there's something called siesta, which siesta is just napping. But you know, we kind of take it like as, as a tradition or something, and we just nap, nap, and nap. And I, I, I've I kind of know there are different types of of um, naps like the power naps and the full like the full um, how does it 
like the full term, like when you go through every single step or phase of, of mm -hmm. sleep, nap. And, but I've seen like naps can vary on time and can actually be like maybe 10, 15 minutes of nap, which doesn't really get you in sleep. So what can you say about naps? <laughs> well, I could say a lot about naps. So how long you have? Um, uh, but so I think there's different, there's certainly different types of naps depending upon the reason why we nap. And there's different terms you can give it for whether you're having a prophylactic nap because you have a lot of sleep need coming up or whether you're sleeping to make up for past sleep loss or whether you're sleeping you're, or you're napping because you have a really high sleep need. So there's all different purposes that naps can fulfill. You know, so if you could take an infant or a toddler, they take naps because their need for sleep is much higher than our need for sleep as adults. Um, so they're taking naps because their sleep need is really high and you just need to break that up into multiple sleep bouts. You can take naps for um, enjoyment. That's another one that we sometimes overlook because very rarely is that even an option anymore because we're usually taking naps because we're sleep deprived, even just a little bit sleep deprived. Um, my guess is that people in Spain or that any that have a siesta culture, they probably have learned to distribute their sleep so that your total sleep need is met by overnight sleep plus that siesta. Um, and so if you think of rather than I need seven to eight hours of sleep a day. I can, I don't need that just at night. I could distribute it about across the day. Now we think that you probably need a little bit more sleep overall if you take that amount and distribute it across the day because you have to allow yourself time to come in and out of sleep. So it maybe costs a little bit to distribute your sleep. Now naps serve the exact same purposes that overnight sleep does because we see that naps are a microcosm of overnight sleep. So what I mean by that is if I take all of those sleep stages that you go through at night, you do the same exact thing during a nap. Um, the only thing is, is the shorter the nap is, the less of those sleep stages you're going you're gonna to get. So it takes 90 minutes to go through all of the sleep cycles. And, you know, I think the benefit of overnight sleep is you go through one sleep cycle and then that's going to change the composition of the next sleep cycle. So if I go through a sleep cycle, it's going to now maybe shift what's important to process as I keep sleeping throughout the night. So then maybe emotional memories might start rising to the top throughout the night. So, so a nap or a siesta could get that process started, but it would have to be combined with overnight sleep to really kind of get the maximum of sleep function. But the nice thing is that a nap can kind of temporarily preserve memories. So it can help you, you know, If I learn something in the morning, everything I do throughout the day is going to cause interference with that morning memory. But if I take a nap, it's going to kind of temporarily put it in a little box and keep things from interfering with that memory. So theoretically, you know, things learned in the morning are going to better, be better remembered if you took a siesta than if you learned it in the morning, skipped the siesta, and then, you know, just relied on overnight sleep. So there's a lot of things that, you know, naps can do every time we talk about, you know, emotional processing and motor memory processing that overnight sleep does naps can do that too, particularly if it's long enough. Now the power nap is so short, it's probably not going to give you all of those benefits. It's probably mostly kind of giving you that sense of refresh, increasing attentiveness. And some of those functions are coming about just merely by making you less sleepy. So it's not that it's maybe causing some direct benefit to a memory or emotion. It's just taking away that feeling of sleepiness that causes inattentiveness that, you know, makes it hard to learn 
or new things in the afternoon. All right, because um, that sense of sleepiness, from what I know, correct me if I'm wrong, comes from the adenosine just building up in the in the brain. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. All right, so that the, the levels of adenosine um, are just wiped out of the brain whenever you sleep, and what makes you kind of refreshed on that morning. So. From my way of understanding it, if I don't sleep enough time during a night sleep, then I just haven't got rid of all the adenosine that is left in my brain. So that just starts building up with the following day. And that's what sleep that is. I think that's a great way to put it. Now, we have a few different ways we talk about where that kind of sleep pressure or sleep debt feeling comes from. So the other one we talk about is this accumulation of sleep pressure that we can measure as slow wave activity across the cortex and how these directly uh, relate with the adenosine hypothesis, I'm not sure that we can have totally disentangled. So it could be that there's two processes. It could be that those things are totally um, aligned. But now you have you know, accumulated sleep pressure, a nap might let go of some of that, probably not all of it. It depends upon how much sleep debt you had. And then that does give you a little boost that, you know, if you took a nap, you're able to stay up a little bit later at night because you have less sleep pressure at the end of the day than if you had gone a day without a nap. So the main thing is that you kind of have that balance of it's and, and that whole sleep pressure piece is what we, there's a two process model of sleep. So there's two things that make you sleep when you do. One is your circadian clock, that 24 hour clock that says, you know, fall asleep at 1, 1 a.m. every night. Um, but the other one is that homeostatic sleep pressure or which is like a thermostat, right? The longer it's been since you've slept, the more you have need for sleep. And so that's that thermostat that we're talking about with the sleep pressure that we don't have full understanding of the mechanism that underlies it. Um, probably I mean, we know adenosine plays a role, how there, it might interact with some of these brain areas that also, um, so there's also evidence that some of the, at the level of the synapses, there's this increase in synaptic weighting. And so there's like this pressure to sleep that might be built up, built up that's directly related to learning as well. So there's a couple of theories in the field that aren't totally disentangled that at the end of the day, probably all relate to each other. And we just don't exactly know how yet, but it's a cool question because most people, if you say, what makes you sleep when you do, they're like, oh, I might know something about the circadian clock. You know, I have this 24 hour clock in my head that makes me fall asleep at the end of the night. But there's this other thing that means that, you know, if you took a nap in the afternoon, your circadian clock might not be set right. It might be that that can actually be pushed back a little bit um, more. Or if you skip the night completely because you stayed up studying for an exam, now you're going to have a ton of sleep pressure so much so that you might need to fall asleep in the middle of the day. Um, and so it's, it's really cool. What you're tapping into is that there's actually two different things that are telling us when to sleep, that kind of thermostat as well as that clock. Okay. Okay. So yeah. Um, I was about to ask if we can, um, push or move for our circadian rhythm, because I guess we can, or I, I've just seen people that kind of try to wake up at 6 a.m. without alarm. How can we get to that point? Uh, this is so good because it's such a practical question, right? Like we all would like to be able to tell our bodies when to be awake and when to not be awake. And it's particularly tricky for like an adolescent or a young adult whose clock might be set later than what society wants us to be at school or, you know, in class. Um, so melatonin is one way. So you could kind of push and pull is the, is the idea. So um, the push 
comes from, I could, or the pull comes from, I can, I can get myself to fall asleep earlier by maybe taking melatonin. So one thing to do is if I, if I'm falling asleep later than I want to, then I could get myself to fall asleep a little earlier by taking melatonin. So if the, the goal is to fall asleep earlier, so to help me wake up earlier, then you take melatonin to get your bedtime to be early. The idea is you can probably shift your your kind of biologically determined bedtime though, only probably by an hour. We would like to shift it sometimes more than that, but probably it's going to be pretty hard to shift it beyond an hour. And then that other side of things, the wake up to help you wake up and shift your clock from that end is by, you can do that by using bright light. So when you wake up, turning on bright light right away, exposing yourself to the sunlight as much as possible. Some people even get on actual bright light therapy box. And while you're eating breakfast, have this bright light shining at you. That's a way to increase your alerting signal. So melatonin helps you um, decrease your alerting signal and helps you fall asleep. The light helps you increase your alerting signal and helps you wake up. And so using those two things on either side of your sleep bout is a way to kind of manipulate when your sleep bout occurs. Now, again, you could try to pull it, push and pull it a lot, but in the end, it's hard to do that beyond about one hour, one to maybe two hour range. Okay, and and you've mentioned um, melatonin, and this, I, I'm just don't know what to think about melatonin because there's like two two ways or or two main um ways of thinking when it comes to melatonin some people or some I, i've just seen some neuroscientists think negatively about melatonin like that it doesn't really have an effect or that it is like just the body can get used to it and there are better alternatives but then there's others who really praise melatonin and how it can actually do something so i guess you are from those who believe that melatonin can actually do something right yeah. So, I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you two answers to that. I mean, I think that it can work within reason. So I think some people, it depends upon what you're asking it to do. So melatonin is particularly good for recovering from jet lag, for instance, it can help you readjust to your schedule, tell it to when you're, you know, try to adjust when you want to sleep. Um, and melatonin, like I said, it can be useful to adjust your clock by an hour or so. But if you're trying to use it to shift your clock by a greater extent than that, then it's not going to work for you, right? Um, and also, if you're not using it in combination with common sense, it's also not going to work, <laughs> right? So you already have melatonin. It's called the vampire hormone because it likes to come out in the dark, right? So you can tap your own natural melatonin. In fact, you know, if you go to class and they turn off the lights to show you some slides, you're going to tap into your own melatonin because the lights go right. off. It just got dark. So your melatonin starts trickling out. And what happens? You feel very sleepy. And in fact, you might fall asleep. So, you know, melatonin works. It's just how much am I asking it to do? And when am I, am I using it again with common sense? If I'm, we, I literally on the market here in the US a few years back was melatonin in chocolate brownies. Okay, so let's think about that. We're gonna give you kind of <laughs> melatonin that's supposed to make you sleepy, but I'm combining it with caffeine. Of course, that's not gonna yeah. work. Or <laughs> if you take melatonin, but you don't, you're still, you know, like in front of, two computer screens or a TV is like flashing lights at you. 
it's not going to work, right? So there are certainly some limits on melatonin because you know it it it, it has to be able to work in its biological way. It it, it still needs dim light. Um, so I think in some cases when you know you hear of somebody's experience and it doesn't work for them, it could be like, well, what are you asking it to do for you? Is that even possible? It's not magic, right? <laughs> and it's not like a hardcore sleeping pill. But at the same time, if you're trying to compare melatonin to some like over the counter, I mean, to some prescription drug, the prescription drugs might work better, but they also have bigger side effects that melatonin don't, doesn't have. So some of those prescription drugs are going to leave you so incredibly groggy in the morning, um, can actually like literally hurt the memory function of the brain during sleep. So that's going to be counterintuitive. Um, so you, again, you've got to use it smartly and any of these medications, whether it be over the counter or prescription medicines, they also need to be used, um, the way they're meant to be. So they're supposed to be used to help you create a new sleep habit, right? They're allowed, they're supposed to be used to stabilize the sleep rhythm that you want to have. At some point they're meant to go away because like melatonin, to your point, you could habituate a bit to melatonin, meaning it's effects are going to kind of gradually not feel so meaningful to you, but you're you hopefully over a month or so have trained yourself to fall asleep when you want to, and you'll rely on that melatonin less. So I think there's a lot of misuse of melatonin and other sleep medications that when you hear of them not working, it's because they're, people are trying to just pop the pill and have a magic pill, like whenever they want it and hmm. trying to get away with not actually having good sleep hygiene. All of these medications, whether it be over the counter or prescription are going to work if they're used in conjunction with good sleep hygiene. And Good sleep hygiene is hard. It means, you know, not using your phone and your computer within the last hour of bedtime. It means not having caffeine late in the day, all these things that are no fun. And so, yeah, these medications might not work, but that's because they're not going to be a magic pill that can override poor habits. Read about sleep hygiene and uh, I just went full into trying to make it just better. And since then, I just don't take caffeine at around 12 or yeah, 12 or 10 a.m. because it sounds like caffeine lasted like around 10 hours to really yep. get rid of yep. the entire, you know, the entire doses. Exactly. And caffeine just kind of blocks the the adenosine building process. Yep. That's yep. what I read. Yeah. So lunch is my cutoff too. Like try to avoid caffeine after lunch for sure. And that's what I try to tell my, my friends, but they kind of don't understand it. And it's like, oh, caffeine doesn't do, like doesn't, or just doesn't do anything to me or oh i just sleep four, four or five hours this night and i feel great and that's like subjective fatigue yeah that you you feel like you're great but you really aren't yeah. and that actually has an effect in your body so how can you explain that subjective fatigue that comes in when you sleep less time that you feel like even more alert. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's hard to fully understand is like our subjective ratings, but I could say that in those cases where you're so fatigued, your brain's also not an accurate measure of being fatigued, right? Like there's people that put themselves into really bad positions, climbing mountains or, you know, doing long distance, you know, tracks because their brains become so fatigued, they don't have an accurate assessment of, are, am I too fatigued to go on? So our brains, when we're fatigued, 
are not accurate measuring sticks, right? And so I think when you get yourself into that position, you don't actually know that you're functioning off because your measuring stick of your kind of mental function is off. Um, So I just think that, you know, those cases when people are trying to make claims like, oh, I'm fine with little sleep. It's like, well, maybe you had so little sleep, you don't know that you're not fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. And I just read like, there's just really few people that are able to live with less than eight or seven hours of sleep per night. And, and they seem to be fine. And it's like, dude, you gotta sleep because you have to. It's like yeah. good for you. Yeah. And it just sounds really bad not to sleep. Yeah, I'll put a caveat on that is that I think the number, so seven versus eight versus six, is really variable. Um, And I think it varies across individuals. And I think it varies across age somewhat. And we don't, it's, it's the hard thing is even as a sleep scientist, I couldn't tell you what that number is for you, right? I can't tell you what it is for science for, you know, the, the society as a whole, we got that number of like seven to eight hours, just from averages of what people kind of had been sleeping, not from whether that was right or not. And we do know like one piece of data is that these things are genetically determined. So, you know, if you look to your parents and they tend to be more on the short sleeping side, then more than likely you're okay with a little less sleep. You look to your parents and they're on the long sleeping side, then yeah, you probably need a little more sleep. Um, But what that exact number is, is unfortunately unclear. I like to say go off and have two weeks of free sleeping where no, you know, you can just sleep as long as you want, wake up whenever you want and see how long you sleep then. Some of us during the pandemic maybe had a time when, you know, early on there weren't um, any constraints on your schedule and maybe you have a better feeling now as to what that number is. And that's great. But, um, you know, some people get really stressed if like I've never slept a full seven hours, even as no matter how hard I try. And then that anxiety about trying to get to seven hours can actually make their sleep worse. They might be comforted in knowing that, well, maybe if you look at your family and you give yourself a, you know, this time to free sleep, maybe it's possible that you're on the shorter side of that range. Um, it's just like looking at the range of height of people, right? Like there might be an average that doesn't mean that, you know, there's like this huge variability and, and your actual height is determined, probably cor- highly correlated with your parents' height. It's very similar with, probably very similar with sleep time and what your exact sleep need is. So we're working on that. And then, like I said, I think it changes with throughout the lifespan. So older adults are like notorious for not being able to sleep as well and sleep less. And it could be that, and science doesn't know the answer to this yet, but we think that to some extent, your need for sleep might go down a little bit as you get older. And so that expectation like, oh, I just don't sleep as much as I used to might actually reflect that, no, you've had a change in how much sleep you need and you need to feel good that you got six hours, even if you used to be a seven or eight hour sleeper. It's something we're working on understanding. But I think, again, it's important to take the anxiety off a person that, hey, if you're not getting seven hours, something might be wrong because that only creates insomnia because now people are like, oh, my God, I really need seven hours. I haven't gotten to seven hours and I just uh, must be off. Some of that can be reduced by like, maybe you're okay um, and try to make sure that you're getting as much as your body allows you to when you can. Um, But I just try to make sure that, you know, we know that that seven to eight hours is the average, but we don't know that exact range and how to get it at at it for an individual. Okay. At the end of the day, you said it's just an average. And what kind of um, 
I don't really understand is why there seems to be like a no sleep culture where they kind of embrace people not to sleep if they want to be successful. And I've seen like a, a whole of different ads of people just look at Bill Gates or look at Elon Musk. He doesn't sleep. Like you have you have to wake up at 4 a.m. if you want to be successful. Like it's just what you have to do. And it's like, no, like this is really different stuff what we're talking about. It's like we're talking about how sleep is God and we are yeah. not really worshiping it. So um, it's just like so contradictory and sleep was referred to as a as magical thing back in the days and nowadays it isn't like that so is there an explanation for this yeah you know we're starting to see a glimmer of <clears throat> a glimmer of hope on that i mean one area where i'm starting to see a lot of responsiveness to how important sleep is is when in various forms of athletics so in the u.s the national football league for instance has gone um to hiring more sleep professionals oh. and the um baseball association is likewise i mean you see a lot of professional sports leagues hiring sleep experts and giving sleep facilities and being more respectful of sleep time um there's some conversations and interviews you can see with olympic athletes and how much they sleep and how how long how they chose their travel times to be able to recover from leg as they traveled to Tokyo, you know, there's, so, so that's where I see the glimmer of hope is like, they've heard it. They know how important sleep is to different sports performance. And there's a lot of cool data you can talk about and look at there. Um, and so, so there's, there's a field that I think is starting to respect it now where we're not saying it as, as you point out, like politicians are famous for, um, being terrible at recognizing the need for sleep and, um, you know, in the business world, they're kind of giving you the wrong impression. Um, I think there's, again, there's certainly some noise in there that people are starting to try to try to appreciate the value of sleep. And you can see more and more companies hiring sleep experts. And Google was for a while known for having nap pods in um, where on their campus. And so I think that there's kind of some, some percolating that, that people are picking up, that this is important. We don't have that top down though. We don't have those key figures in the those fields that are saying, "Hey, I slept a lot, and this is this was good for me." Um, so I think we're kind of, you know, we're, we're we're seeing some recognition and some, you know, acceptance and more and more talks on on sleep in the in the field, but really kind of getting those things to strike home. I think are is is still part of the process. I think we're still getting there, um, but I think I, I see hope in it. You know, I'm sure certainly there's some books on the market right now that are really popular because the everyday Joe is realizing how it's important and trying to defend their access to it. Um, so we're getting, we're getting there, but you're right that we're far, we're far from having kind of really accepted the need. And, you know, the number of college students that brag about having pulled an all nighter to study for an exam, <laughs> it's still, it's still pretty bad. It is, it is, but it just, it's good for me to, to hear that this kind of hope just in the future, hopefully people start realizing how important sleep is. So let's see what we get at. And just as a final question, Rebecca, because um, we're running out of time, I just want to end this episode with a, a, just a, a slight emphasis on memory impairments and maybe how or what happens in our memory or in our brain when we just suffer from those diseases that um, kind of are just amnesia or, you know, um, Alzheimer and that, that sort of disease, what happens or what goes 
on inside the brain? That's a good question. Um, so there's some of these diseases, particularly the neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease and some other dementias that we now know are associated with poor sleep. Now, we don't understand that relationship just yet as to why poor sleep is seen in individuals with Alzheimer's. And it seems that poor sleep actually precedes the Alzheimer's, at least the detectable Alzheimer's disease. So it does seem that there's something going on with poor sleep and the eventual onset of Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia that has been really, you know, an important part of the field. I mean, one thing that we know is sleep is, has a process of clearing out what we call just brain waste. So there's this neurotoxic waste that can accumulate in cells and recent studies have shown how that can be cleared out with the cycling of cerebral spinal fluid that takes place during slow wave sleep. So that's super cool because that means when you're sleeping early in the night is when you have your slow wave sleep. It's in about the first third of the night. You have this cerebral spinal fluid washing through your brain, washing through your brain. And what it's doing when it washes through your brain is it's like the little, it's like having the, the uh, cleaning staff come in and sweep up and take the trash out of your cells. So that then leaves better cells. So if you think of somebody that maybe at midlife was having poor sleep, you could think then that they then had greater accumulation of neurotoxic waste, and then that can precipitate many other things, including, you know, an eventual dementia onset. So that's our current thinking as to how that, you know, that relationship between how you can have poor sleep and what that does in these, some of these memory disorders. There might be some memory disorders that are completely independent of sleep, but maybe sleep could at least support them to do as best as they can, given that you have a memory disorder. Um, but it's a, it's a great question. And I hope people that are listening to this get excited about the field of sleep science, because there are such interesting and important questions like that, that we, we really, they're wide open. So particularly like people that are looking for a field to pursue, it's a really cool field to be part of because you're asking, you're answering these like cool questions that, you know, I love that I could talk to anybody, uh, you know, in an elevator about what I do and they're fascinated and it's fun. And there's so many things that we have yet to uncover. Indeed. And that's what I love about brain science and just about our brain. And just, I would love to continue talking with you uh, about, you know, diseases and memory and basically about the brain. But I think we can call it a day for, for today. And yeah, I'm just really glad that we well we as, as me and the person that hopefully will be listening to this episode have the chance to kind of go through this new knowledge hopefully and learn about sleep and really 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 cool stuff so i want to thank you you rebecca for for this you're welcome thanks for having me of course so yeah that's pretty much it is there anything you'd like to promote say or encourage to the to the audience well, I hope that the take-home message is obvious, and that is to sleep well and, <laughs> and not sacrifice the sleep, right? So that's always kind of where you know, if you if you have a busy day, which we all do, what is the first thing that gets compromised? That's usually our sleep. And I hope that people know to prioritize your sleep more um, and that it's maybe one of the most important parts of your day. And so protect that sleep time and don't let it be the first thing to give when you get really busy. Thank you. You've heard it, guys. So just maybe... What about sleeping? That might be a good option. 